GQ uh, magazine uh, once interviewed uh, the enigmatic uh, actor Keanu Reeves. Uh, he was interviewed a few years ago, and the writer of the article said that the actor, who, who's now in his mid-50s, the actor sits in his Hollywood Hills home and, quote, wonders if it's the house he's going to die in. Uh, Keanu says, I, I didn't think about that when I was 40. Uh, despite having been paid over uh, $350 million during his film, film career, uh, he also uh, wonders if at any point that, you know, that, uh, that feeling, uh, that whether he will have that feeling of being secure enough to take his foot off the gas, to be content, to just enjoy life and make fewer films. He, he says, I hadn't really thought about my career future or what was going to happen until really recently. And, and, and then he says, uh, transitioning into a story that he tells about Anthony Quinn the, that he was working with, um, the two-time uh, Oscar-winning uh, Anthony Quinn. On the, uh, they're working on the movie uh, A Walk in the Clouds in, in 1995, six years before Quinn's uh, death. Quinn, he says, was always on the phone, checking to see if he'd book this or book that. And one day, Keanu asked Anthony Quinn a question. He asked Quinn, is it always going to be like this? And Quinn told the younger actor that, yes, it would be. And Keanu went on to, to say, there's this idea that at some point you're going to be set. And then maybe there won't be so much working on working. It just struck me that this gentleman, this legend at 80 years old, the article and says that his voice trails off to the point where Keanu just says, whoa, which is, which is kind of a Keanu thing to say, isn't it? You know, whoa. You know what Keanu was woeing about? You know what Keanu's looking for? He's looking for the secret. He is looking for rest. He is looking for contentment. So happy New Year's, everyone. Uh, re resolutions are on everyone's mind. My, my wife and I last night sat down for what we call our annual summit, uh, where we dream together, where we chat about the next year, about personal goals, our collective goals, resolutions, uh, things that we want to see done differently and see in this new year. And maybe that's where you're at uh, as well today. And, and maybe you've been thinking about those things. But here's what I I want to pause it today, that maybe what we need, even more than goals, which are, are good and important and needful, more than we need resolutions, we need the thing that is underneath our goals, underneath our desire for change, uh, for, the, for the, the things that, ha that happen in our lives, underneath the circumstances of our lives. We need something that is subterranean. And Paul calls that subterranean thing, he calls it the secret, the secret of contentment. And I want you to imagine for just a moment if this year you found it, you found the secret of contentment. Imagine uh, that you would be able to say, as Paul says, that I am at rest in any and all circumstances, whether in plenty or in want. Meaning whether I have $350 million dollars, or $350,000, or $3,500, or $350, I am at rest. I am content. Imagine being able to say that if I go in 
to this year and try my best and succeed. Or I go out and I try my best and I fall on my face in this new year. No matter what happens, no matter what I go through, I'm good. I'm at peace. I am at rest. I am content. And maybe you hear that and you think, that sounds nice, but that's impossible. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, like anybody could, could have that. Well, there was a person in the passage that was just read for us who said he found it. So, so maybe we, it, w- it would do us some good just to, to, to figure out what he found, what, what he, he says he learned. He, how did he learn the secret of contentment? And so we're going to look at that today under, under three ideas that we find in this passage where Paul is cultivating contentment in his life. Uh, he says that he learned it in plenty. So if you want contentment, you've got to learn it in plenty. Uh, You've also got to learn it in want, and at the end, he tells us that you've got to learn it in Christ, ultimately. So you you have to learn it in plenty, you have to learn it in want, you have to learn it ultimately in Christ. Let's start with the plenty. Uh, Paul says that we must learn contentment in plenty. And, 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 And let me talk for a second about the problem of plenty. Because Paul understands that plenty is actually a problem that we all face. Now, we don't see it that way, do we? We, we think that plenty is the solution to our discontentment. But Paul would actually say that plenty can become the source of our discontentment. And, and, and so, for instance, if you, if you go back a chapter previous, um, chapter 3 in Philippians, Paul begins to list all of his accomplishments and Paul, he's, he's, he's a quite impressive guy. He is learned. He is well-trained. He's an intellectual. He, he has, he, he, and he lists his accomplishments, his, his success in the academic realm, his success in the religious realm. He, he's the envy of those around him. And he says, if anyone, if anyone has reason to put confidence in the plenty, it's me. Because I've got it. I've got plenty of plenty. And he, and, and he says, if there's one thing that he has learned, it's the burden of plenty. And he's not being a stoic. He's not looking at the good things in life and saying, no, those things are actually bad things. Those material things are bad things. That, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that I got contentment just by demonizing those things or kind of, you know, mystically rising above them. No, he's saying, I had to learn contentment in plenty. I had to learn it. He had to, 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 to face the burden of plenty. And, and it's a burden that you and I don't like facing. You know the, the, the story, Aladdin. Uh, in Aladdin, the, the genie says you get three wishes, right? The, the genie uh, tells him he gets three wishes. And Aladdin has, tells the genie uh, he will use two for himself. And he will use one to set the genie free. And the genie says... No, you won't. Because after you use the two wishes, you're going to want more wishes. You're going to want more things. It it will not be enough for you. The two will not be enough for you. And I want to ask you to ask yourself that kind of question. What is enough for you? When will be enough for you? What, What else do you need to get to, to the place where you can finally rest? 
Is it, you know, if, 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 if I just had a windfall of cash right now, oh, oh, I could rest. Or, or this, there's this thing that I, I, I just want to happen, and if it just happened in my life, then finally I would be happy. If, if this business deal finally came through, if, 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 whatever it is, finally happened, then I would be happy. You know, in America, we spend more on state lotteries than sporting events, movie tickets, music combined. Why? Because we are convinced, even if you don't play the lottery, there is something inside all of us, inside the human condition, that is saying the next big thing is around the corner, and I need it to happen. I wish it to happen. I want it to happen. And when it happens, when this fantastic thing, whatever it is, happens, then I will be content. Let me tell you something. You've already used your two wishes. Because listen, you live in America. You've already used two wishes. Think about it. You and I, we live in the wealthiest nation in the history of humanity. It, 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 it's absolutely unbelievable. That, that, that third wish, the thing you're pining after, the thing that, you're, that we're discontent about, we've already used two of them. And we're still not happy. The wealthiest nation in the world, you would think because of that, we're also the happiest nation in the world. But studies have shown that we're not the happiest people. Americans are not the happiest people. More access to clean water, more access to health care, more wealth, GDP per capita. Friends, we have already used our two wishes, but we're not happy. We're still longing for more. What is, what is going on? There's a, there's a factory in South Asia inside this little village where they... Uh, make the hot toy over Christmas every year. They, they kind of become known uh, for that. They, they manufacture it in this, um, in this factory. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, it was hoverboards. You know, they were setting houses on fire and stuff. But everybody wanted, uh, you, know, uh, you know, was into hoverboards. And before that, remember Beanie Babies? This factory made uh, Beanie Babies. Uh, Furby? Remember Furby or... Furby or Furby's plural, I, I don't know, but anyway, that, this factory made it. Uh, Tickle Me Elmo, remember Tickle Me Elmo? Cabbage Patch Dolls, the Pet Rock going all the way back to, you know, the Pet Rock days, this factory, Atari Transformers. And the thing is, they've actually done uh, interesting observations about this factory. Every year, this factory shifts. This factory changes. They, they get in new equipment. They have to retrofit everything for the hot, that hot new product that year. They, they bring in all of this new equipment. And listen, here's the point. If you and I, if you and I are going to face the plenty with poise, we have to realize the factory is not somewhere in South Asia the factory is right here. The factory is inside each one of us. John Calvin said the human heart is an idle factory. We are constantly manufacturing new products, new desires, new wants. This will be enough. No, this will be enough. No, this will be enough. We are that factory. And if you and I 
are going to face the plenty. We have, to, we have to at least realize that. Through the prophet Haggai, uh, God actually says this. Take a good look, a good hard look at your life. Think it over. You've spent a lot of money, but you haven't much to show for it. You keep filling your plates, but you never get filled up. You keep drinking and drinking and drinking, but you are always thirsty. You put on layer after layer of clothes, but you can't get warm. And if you don't want to go to the prophet Haggai, go to the prophet Bono, who says, still haven't found what I'm looking for. It is that search. When will it be enough? And you know what, what this explains? This explains something I think we all deal with, FOMO. FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Missing out on what? The plenty. That's what we feel like we're missing out on. And it creates all sorts of social anxiety when, when, when you see what, what other people have and you, and you see what other people are doing. It makes you feel insecure, like you don't have enough. I, I mean, have you ever had to, to unfollow someone on social media because you just can't take it anymore? You can't take looking at their perfect life with their, with their perfect looks and, and you just have to unfollow follow them for the sake of your own wholeness and well-being. I mean, because everybody makes, everything looks so perfect on social media. You know, people will go on a trip and, and post these amazing pictures, like, like it is the greatest trip, and they're having the greatest time. And it's hard for us to keep in mind that people are being very selective. There are some pictures that they don't show. There are some pictures they don't take. You know, they, they don't make a post about them being short with their spouse. Said something really passive, aggressive to my wife. Post, you know. You know. Here's a picture of me yelling at my kids. Post. Here's a, here's a picture of a $35 personal pizza that my son ordered at Disneyland that he says he doesn't like, he doesn't want to eat it. Post. We don't get that, do we? I remember there was a sketch on the show, uh, Portlandia. I don't know if you watched uh, Portlandia, but there's this one sketch where this couple has a, has a, has a bad trip. They're, they're dating each other, and the, and, the, and the couple goes to Italy, and it's a bad trip. They're bored with each other. They're, you know, they're, they're short with one another the whole, the whole time. They're missing stuff, and, and it's, they're just, it's just frustrated and, and awful, but, but they're taking these awesome pictures the whole time, and so their friends are back home going, what, a, what, a, what an awesome trip. And then they get home, and, and Fred Armisen, he's, he's playing one of the characters. He walks in on his friends who, who are on their laptops, and uh, as he walks in, and, and the pictures are all up on the screen, and they're, and they're looking at them going, this, this must have been the greatest trip ever. That was amazing. And it gets deep for a second because Armisen says, yeah, people on the internet, they're not as happy as the pictures portray them to be. And then one of the friends says, yeah, everybody just crops out all of the sadness. Ain't that the truth? We just crop out all of the sadness. And when you try to make the plenty the secret of contentment, 
you will begin just cropping out all of the sadness. You will begin pretending, you will begin posturing, you will begin performing. And the reality is you can crop out the sadness to your family. You can crop out the sadness to your friends. But you know you cannot crop out the sadness to yourself. You can't. But Paul faces it. Paul faces the burden of plenty. And here's how he does it. In, in Philippians chapter 3, he lists all of his accomplishments. And, and, and then he calls them all rubbish. And the Greek word used there is actually like an ancient cuss word. All of my accomplishments are crap. That's what he calls them. And here's how... He's cultivating, learning the secret of contentment in seasons of plenty. He doesn't take the bait. You know, these are just good things, but they're not ultimate things. My identity is not tied up to these things, he says. In fact, I have no problem counting them all rubbish. I can live without them. That's how you begin to cultivate the secret of contentment in seasons of plenty. How do you learn it in seasons of want? Okay, let me pivot for a second. How do you learn it in want, in lack. Well, Paul, when he says he learned it not just in seasons of plenty, but in seasons of needing and want, he had, he had plenty, to, plenty to stand on to make that statement because he was very accustomed to, to suffering. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, here's just a profile of Paul's suffering. I'm just going to read it really quickly. He says, I've been jailed more often, beaten up more often than I can count, and at death's door time after time. I've been flogged five times, beaten by a rod three times, pummeled with rocks once. I've been shipwrecked three times and immersed in the open sea for a night and a day. In hard traveling year in and year out, I've had to ford rivers, fend off robbers, struggle with friends, struggle with foes. I've been at risk in the city, at risk in the country, endangered by desert sun and sea storm, and betrayed by those I thought were my brothers. I've known drudgery and hard labor, many a long and lonely night without sleep, many a missed meal, blasted by the cold, naked to the weather. In the hard and the difficult, he learned the secret of contentment. In fact, from where does Paul write the letter to the Philippians? He writes it from prison, a place of intense suffering. And he uses the word joy, joy more times in the book of Philippians than, than, than you will find in any other book of the Bible. Writing from prison, from want. See, discontentment comes to us in, in two, two ways. It comes to us from, from that longing for the things that we don't have. It comes from, from not being happy with the things that, that, that we do have in plenty, but it also comes from the longing for those things and those situations that we're not in that we wish we were in. And so in those times of want, what do we do? When we don't have the secret of contentment in want, we complain, we grumble, we plead to God, we plead to others. We become miserable people to be around. Listen, I'll give, you, I'll give you, if you want, some how-tos. Let, let, me, let me do a how-to on how to be miserable. You know, would that help? Here, here's a how-to list, okay? First and foremost, count your troubles. 
Your troubles are new day by day. They're new every morning. Count them. Name them one by one. Start early. Maybe over breakfast, just counting your troubles. Utilize Facebook and Instagram to follow those people who are more successful than you are and better looking than you are. Utilize Amazon to keep those material cravings you have alive. That's a good tip. Get another credit card to keep it all up. If you don't have enough money to, for things that you want, don't worry about it. Just borrow it. Pity yourself. That's a great one. Because here's the thing. If you don't pity yourself, no one else will. Blame other people. That's a good one, right? Complain about everything. And then I promise you, I promise you, you will be miserable. It can, it can happen. It will happen to you. Have I helped with that? You know, I don't think you need my help. I mean, you and I are pretty good at that stuff on our, on our own, aren't we? There, there's, a, there's a scene in one of the Charlie Brown strips where, where Linus says to his sister, to Lucy, are you complaining again? Don't you realize that you spend all your time complaining? And, and Lucy says, why shouldn't I complain? And Linus does not have an answer for her. Do you? Do you have an answer to that? Are you like Lucy? Why shouldn't I complain? You hate your job. Why shouldn't I complain? You hate where you live. Why shouldn't I complain? You don't like the president. Why shouldn't I complain? You, you, you don't like the injustices that you've experienced in this world. Why shouldn't uh, I complain? You, you feel unappreciated by, by others. Why shouldn't I compl- complain? Other people make you feel small. There's something inside all of us that that says, why shouldn't I complain? I'm not getting what I want. And so what Paul does is, I read read from uh, uh, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians where he recounts his suffering. Well, in chapter 12, he talks about the hardest circumstance he deals with. He calls it his thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what it is, and thankfully we don't know what it is, because if we were told um, what it was, we'd probably go, I don't deal with that, right? This, this doesn't apply to me. I think by us not knowing, it's the Bible's way of saying that everybody's got something. We've all got something we wish would change. And so Paul, in this passage, talking about his, his thorn in the flesh, um, and, and he prays to God to change it. which tells you that it's not wrong to ask God about changing your circumstance. You can do that. Here's what he says. He says, At first, I did not think of this thing as a gift, and I begged God to remove it. Three times I did that. And then he told me, My grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. And as I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. That's what he says in in chapter 12. And what he's saying is, listen, I pleaded to God three times. And there's nothing magic about the the three times, uh, or the the number three there. The point that Paul, that that, that is being made is that for Paul, there is a limit. He did stop asking at some point. Isn't that interesting? And he heard from God. This weakness in your life, instead of me changing the circumstance for you, I'm going to do something. I'm going to use this to make you great. 
And my grace, my power, my strength is going to be seen in you through this very thorn in your flesh. The very thing in your life that you think is taking all of the life out of you is the very thing I'm going to use to give you life. You see this wisdom throughout the, throughout the Bible. In Job chapter 2, he experiences all kinds of hardship and attack, and he's surrounded by a group of miserable counselors who give him just horrible advice. And one of them is his spouse, who says, hey, you're going through all of this, all of this misery, all of this suffering. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job says, you speak as one of the foolish ones who speak. Shall we receive good from God, but not receive evil? This is someone who learned the secret. In the book of Jonah, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And in your seasons of want, here's the question. Are you pining for an idol? Are you longing and asking for an idol? Do you have the humility enough to see you, you, you might be doing that? You might be pleading for an idol. And, and can you hear the voice of God say, hold on a second. You want my grace? You want my goodness? You want my power? It's right where you are at right now. And it is sufficient for you. And it can make you a person of poise, a person of courage, a person of strength, not through removing it, but within it. That's the secret. So what do we do? Well, Charles Spurgeon says, he's really helpful here. I believe this quote is on even in your worship guide. He says, remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. You are placed by God in the most suitable circumstance And if you had the choosing of your lot, you would soon cry, Lord, choose it for me. For by my self-will, I am pierced through with many sorrows. Be content with such things as you have, since the Lord has ordered all things for your good. Take up your your own daily cross. It is the burden best suited for your shoulder and will prove most effective to make you perfect in every good word and work to the glory of God. Listen, the secret of contentment can be cultivated in seasons of plenty when we don't take the bait, when we refuse to believe that the plenty can make us whole when it cannot. And the season season of contentment can be cultivated, or the secret of, 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 of contentment can be cultivated in plenty and in want when we submit to the care and control of God over our lives, when, when we let the grace, uh, the grace and strength come in and meet us in those places. But ultimately, you can, you can learn all of that, but the secret of contentment itself is not found in plenty. It's, it's learned in plenty. It's not found in want. It's learned in want. It is found, it is both found and learned in Christ. And Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. And the, and, and the phrase uh, through Christ is, is 
Best translated, in Christ. Paul is talking about being united to Christ. And that phrase, all things, means just what it says. In all circumstances. And that word strength, strengthen is actually the Greek word where we get our, our word dynamite. So what Paul is saying, being in Christ is a dynamic power, an explosive power that can provide real perspective and real peace in all things. This this growing awareness that you are in Christ, that is the secret to contentment, Paul says. That's the secret. What does it mean uh, for you that you are in someone else? I mean, if you are a defendant, you are in your attorney. If your attorney is successful, you're successful. If your attorney fails, you fail. If you're married, you are united to your spouse. Their debts are your debts. Their riches are your riches. Their family becomes your family. That's how union works. You know, if you're, if, if you're, if you're on a soccer team, you maybe never made it off the bench at the World Cup, but... Lionel Messi is on your team. You, you've been sitting on the sidelines for the whole tournament, but you are in Lionel Messi. You are united to him. So when he scores the winning goal, you win. When he gets the trophy, it's your trophy. You're united. Here's what it means to be in Christ. Here's what it means. It means that Jesus has won a victory for us. He has won for us on the cross forgiveness of our sins, a love that meets you at your worst, adoption into his family, an inheritance, as it says, the riches of God's grace, which is lavished on you, the smile of God over your life. You're united to Jesus, which means God can never be mad at you. You know what an amazing thing that is? Why? Because, because God could never be, the Father could never be mad at Jesus, and you're in Jesus. You have the delight, the love, the favor of God over you. Your sins have been paid for. That is the secret to contentment. I'll close with this. The psalmist in Psalm 4 says, Many, Lord, are asking, listen to this, many people are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us, O God. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and their new wine abound. Listen, here's what it's saying. In this passage, many people are demanding someone better come through with plenty. I want the plenty. And the the psalmist is saying, may I not be counted among their lot. What I want is not the plenty. What I want is the face of God turned to me. What I want is the favor of God turned to me. I want the experience of the love and the favor of God. Fill my heart with joy, the psalmist says, so that when their new wines abound, there will be no envy in me. And when envy begins to storm my gate... I will still be at rest. You will never know contentment. You will never experience contentment if you don't rejoice and experience in the face and love of God over you. You'll never get it. That you are his beloved. That is the dynamite. That's the secret to contentment. Friends, 
you've only always had three wishes. And you've already used two of them. You've got one left. What are you going to use it on? Are you going to wish for more wish for more wishes to get more things, more stuff? Or are you going to wish, are you, are you going to long for the face of God seen and found and experienced in Jesus Christ? That's the secret to contentment. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see the Son. Help us to see the one who gave up all things for us so that we could have union with him. So we could have rest with you. Whether in plenty or in want, uh, we can have the secret. God, we want the secret. We want uh, contentment, which means that we want Jesus. So give us Jesus, we pray. And we thank you that as we come now to this table, that this is the place where you have given us the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus Christ is here in this bread and in this cup. Well, thank you that we have, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the favor, the smile of God upon us. And so as we come to, in celebration around this table now, we, we pray that we would know and experience afresh the delight of God over his people. We look back in remembrance of the great sacrifice that was, was made for this to happen, that the Lord Jesus gave all, that we might be brought into your family, that we might be reconciled back to you. And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus and for this bread in the cup. Would you feed us? Would you nourish us as we seek to live for you in this world and in this new year that will open up before us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we do remember that night when the Lord Jesus gathered with his disciples and during the meal he took bread and he gave thanks to his father for it and broke it. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper he took the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. My blood will be poured out for a complete remission of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so this morning, let us proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Feed on them in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. I'll invite our servers forward as they come. We'll uh, first serve our, our musicians and those who need to remain seated. And then we'll invite, as we come back to the front, we'll invite you to come forward down the center aisle, receive the elements, um, and return to your seats by way of the outside aisles. And hold the bread and cup until all are served, and we'll partake together this morning.
Come receive the Lord Jesus as he's freely on offer to you this morning. love my God would bring you down to earth what king would take a low and lonely birth yet to this dark and broken place you came to sleep beneath the stars that you had made Would love my God would send the way of life to walk the road rejected and despised that you might know the weakness I possess and be my rock of strength and righteousness. Oh, your love, my God, like a flood As heaven opened up, pouring down on us Oh, praise the King who came to the world In His love like a mighty flood
What love, my God, could hold you to the tree to bear that overwhelming debt for me? The Son of Heaven leaves a Father's side. The healer bleeds, the life was made to die. Oh, your love, my God, like a flood, as heaven opened up. Pouring down on us, oh praise the King who came to the world in His love like a mighty What love, my God, so gracious and extreme Was strong enough to come and fight for me To go through hell and down into the grave And raise me up to see you face to face you raise me up to see you face to face. Oh, your love, my God, like a flood, as heaven opened up, pouring out on us. Oh, praise the King who came to the world in his love like a mighty flood oh your love my god like a flood as heaven opened up pouring out on us oh praise the king who came to the world in his love like a mighty flood in his love like a mighty flood sisters is the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has been given for you for complete remission of all your sins. <laughs> 